names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. Knock, knock. Who's there? Interrupting cow. Interrupting cow. <laughs> now, most people have heard that one, but fewer people have heard knock, knock. Who's there? Interrupting sloth. Interrupting sloth who? Hey. <laughs> I love that one. So, for a while, I was dating this uh, Chinese woman that I met on a dating website, and she barely talked any English. Like, she was, um, like, right from China, hadn't been here long. And you got her right off the boat, eh? Got her right away. <laughs> and um, I was kind of serving as her, like, tour guide to Chapel Hill for a while, but, uh, you know, we started dating... And it was interesting dating somebody who barely talked any English because we had to find, like, other ways to, like, communicate and, uh, you know, take walks and stuff like that. But I remember one day I was trying to, uh, like, tell her some jokes. And when I got into knock-knock jokes, it was so weird because, like, you know, you just take for granted as an American um, the knock-knock joke. We all know knock-knock jokes. <laughs> Try explaining a knock-knock joke to somebody who barely speaks your language from another country that's not familiar with them. You know, she's like, so I, are we pretending there's a door? <laughs> that's not funny. Yeah, not not funny. And uh, suddenly you feel so stupid, you know, trying to do this knock-knock joke, and uh, it just totally fell apart. It did not translate. So imagine with that difficulty already happening— when I tried to tell her my favorite knock-knock joke, which goes thusly. Knock-knock. Who's there? I eat mop. I eat my poo. That's disgusting. <laughs> yeah. Did not make her laugh. So my anyway. Poo, that's my name in China. Oh, that is terrible. I know. Now, um, we for this episode, I want to get into the importance of storytelling and particularly jokes to like hobos, hitchhikers, anybody sitting around a campfire, you know, um, this is a big part of escaping society, the oral tradition. Um, for what is a joke, but a very short story. Mm. And, um, you know, just imagine sitting around your little, your jungle fire, you know, with the other hobos and, uh, you know, saying, what do you call two hobos hitting each other with cardboard? Pillow fight! <laughs> That's going to make you popular around the fire. So I would say right away, one of the most important things to know about jokes is know your audience. You know, especially nowadays, everybody's looking for reasons to be offended. Everybody seems to be so hypersensitive. Think about what joke you're telling where. You can tell a racist joke to black people if you know them. There are like, you know, all kinds of people that can take a joke, that can't take a joke, um, you can always joke about yourself, but even there, you got to be careful where you're telling jokes. For instance, um, you know, if you're jumping that train and you're riding the rails and the hobo you're riding the rails with, with happens to be black, you might not want to come out with, why do white people shop at black people's yard sales? I don't know why. To get their stuff back. No. Might not be the joke to tell somebody you don't know really well. Um, likewise... If you're getting, if you're hitchhiking and you get picked up by a woman, it might not make you super popular to ask her how many men does it take to open a beer. I don't know how many. None. She ought to have the damn thing open when she brings it to Ooh. you. 
Now, I was dating another girl many years before the, the Chinese woman I was dating, and uh, I decided to come out with that joke in front of her mom. I did not pick my audience. So when I say know your audience, I'm speaking from experience, <laughs> a long history of experience of not choosing my audience. Um, the right joke at the right time is brilliant. It just lifts the whole mood of the room. The wrong joke in front of the wrong person, death sentence. Imagine sitting around a campfire with a bunch of Chinese people and asking them, hey, uh, you know what the Chinese couple named their black baby? Oh, my God. What went wrong? Oh. They might not like it. So know your audience. Um, when I think of the power of stories, you know, and, and like I said, jokes to me are little short stories. Um, stories can create Stories transform. They transport us. They take us away from where we are right now for a moment. For the length of the story, we're somewhere else. Um, a different season, a different time, a different adventure. Um, they teach. There's so many old stories that have lessons that are passed down through the generations to remember really important things and from our own lives. And they help us laugh at ourselves, especially jokes. They help us take ourselves lightly instead of feeling so goddamn self-important. Um, I think Daniel Quinn really helped me, uh, start thinking in different ways about stories and what they mean to our culture. Um, in Ishmael, he says, there is nothing fundamentally wrong with people. Given a story to enact that puts them in accord with the world, they will live in accord with the world. But given a story to enact that puts them at odds with the world, as yours does, they will live at odds with the world. Given a story to an act in which they are the lords of the world, they will act like lords of the world. And given a story to an act in which the world is a foe to be conquered, they will conquer it like a foe. And one day, inevitably, their foe will, will lie bleeding to death at their feet as the world is now. Mm. We get trapped in our stories. When we create these stories, um, you know, we think when like, oh, okay, I'm going to tell a joke. Okay, there's a little two-minute story. What we forget is we're already inside of a story. Um, we've chosen a story and the story either helps us or hurts us, but we exist inside of a story of our own choosing. I really like the way Don Miguel Ruiz says it when he says, listen to other people tell their story, but don't believe them. You know that it's just a story that is only true for them, but listen because the communication can be wonderful. Whatever you perceive, you always make a story with yourself as the main character and that dictates your life. He's describing this very thing I'm trying to describe. You live that story. You're the main character of your story, and that shapes your whole life, what story you exist in. Um, Ruiz goes on to say in his book, The Fifth Agreement, um, he, he describes the three levels of awareness. And I've described this before in our podcast, but I think it bears repeating because it's so important. I, I get so much benefit from it. He talks about the first level of awareness, the lowest level of awareness, where most people are is what he calls the victim. The victim doesn't know they're in a story. The victim thinks that their story is ultimate reality, and they're con always baffled that other people don't seem to know the story. They're always frustrated they can't get other people to buy the story. And the story to them is ultimate reality, and it traps them. These people always feel like things are out of their control. They're, they're oppressed. They're um, victimized. They are the constant victim. The warrior begins to have windows into the fact that it's just a story. 
So the warrior sometimes realizes, oh, this is just a story. I can let this go. I can listen to someone else's story and adopt that story for a while and be in that story. But the warrior then sinks back into the victim role. So the warrior is a fighter. And uh, Don Miguel Ruiz describes this as like just feeling like a never-ending battle, like it's just not going to stop. It's, it's hard. Um, you're trying to wake up, and you keep falling back asleep. But the master... The third and highest level of awareness is someone who recognizes that a story is just a story. The master can bounce back and forth from one story to the other and laugh at them all. They're all jokes. They're all one joke. That's your joke. This is my joke. They're all places to play in because they're only stories and they pass. None of them are that important and the master takes themselves ever so lightly. I really got a lot of benefit from that. Just, uh thinking about that over the years and uh, considering, you know, what's my story and how very real my story feels sometimes. When I started teaching and working with kids, I realized the importance of stories right away. We'd have a rowdy group of kids that are acting up. They won't listen. Or you're like, you know, yelling at them like, everybody sit down, listen, and they won't do it. But then somebody starts telling a story. Wow. Just watch every kid sit down and eager to hear the story, and then eager to hear another story. And you can put anything you want in that story, any lesson you want to convey. The power of a story was unmistakable. I wanted to learn how to tell stories, but I've never been somebody who gets in front of up in front of a crowd of people, so I had that, that shyness, that anxiety, and uh, <clears throat> I was looking for a way to push myself. How can I tell stories better? And I realized along the way, that a joke is a very short, non-committal story. So I began to tell jokes all the time at camp. Um, I'd collect jokes. One of my ways to break the ice with a group of kids that were just meeting me is, all right, who's got a joke? Kids always have jokes, and most of them are abysmal. And God help you if one of the kids wants to share a joke that they made up themselves. Oh Look out. <laughs> it's going to be so bad. But... <laughs> It's really interesting to like get that dialogue going, and kids love sharing things, especially their own jokes. Um, and you can tell a story. You can elaborate on a joke, stretch it out into a long story. And if you start feeling like, oh, okay, like uh, I'm getting nervous here, it's starting to feel like I'm telling a story, I want to get out, jump to the punchline, bam, story's over in a nice, funny way. So a joke was a brilliant way to practice. And this got me kind of, I think of that as my gateway into the oral tradition, you know, oh. the storytelling. Wrong kind of oral tradition, Teresa. We don't want to hear about your gateway into the oral <laughs> tradition. Um, one of my, uh, you know, and we all know, um, ask me what the secret of comedy is. What is Timing. The Damn it. <laughs> so, here's some jokes I used to tell the kids, just a couple. Um, I used to say, two muffins are in an oven. One muffin turns to the other and says, boy, is it hot in here. The second muffin says, ah, talking muffin. <laughs> they didn't like that one that much. Most of the time they just looked at me kind of puzzled. <laughs> that was a thinker for eight-year-olds. Of course muffins talk. Oh, God. Or how do you catch a unique rabbit? I don't know how. Unique up on it. Uh, how do you catch a tame rabbit? I don't know. Tame way. Mm. <clears throat> and... An example, this is not one I would tell the kids, but an example of a joke that you can stretch out to make a story out of, and this is one of my favorite jokes, goes something like this. <clears throat> Let me take a drink of my beer. So, there was this guy 
who was raised to um, think so highly of Scotland. His parents would tell him all the time, like, we are Scottish. You know, you are from Scotland. You're a Scot. Be proud. (laughs) And, you know, it never really meant anything to him because he was born in America and never really identified as being Scottish. But... You know, one day both of his parents died in a car accident, and he was really broken up about it and decided, all right, to honor my parents, I'm going to go back to the homeland. I'm going to to reacquaint myself with my roots, what it means to be a Scot. So buys a plane ticket, flies over there, goes into the nearest town that he finds, and he's kind of, you know, wondering, how do I, like, I don't want to just go to the tourist places. How do I really interact with, like, the Scots? How do I, I feel what it's like to be Scottish? And so he sees a little pub, a little bar, walks in there. Nobody's in there. Uh, he's kind of disappointed. Like, I don't know, like, how to start a conversation. There's not any, even anybody here to start a conversation except the bartender. So I guess I'll start there. And he walks over, goes up to the bartender. And just to make conversation, he says, ah, so uh, what do they call you? And the bartender grabs him by the shirt collar, jerks him over the bar, drags him out a door to the back, and he points to a wall and he says, do you see that? And the guy says, yeah, I see it. And he (laughs) says, I built that wall with my own two hands. I dug up the stones. I fit them together. I mixed the mortar. I spent weeks, months building that wall. But do they call me the wall builder? Uh, I don't know. No, they don't call me the wall builder. (laughs) And he drags the guy down the road a ways and points to a church and he says, do you see that? And the guy says, yeah. And he says, I built that church with me on two hands. I got the bricks, I put them together. I cut down the trees to make the pews. I put the cushions in so people's little tushies will be comfortable when they listen to the gospel. But do they call me the church builder? And the guy says, uh, no. No, they don't call me the church builder. And he drags the guy down to the shoreline and points to a big, beautiful boat and says, do you see that? The guy says, yeah. And he says, I built that boat with me on two hands. I'll cut down the trees and fit the boards together so they'd float. No water gets in that boat. I sewed the sails. It took me months, lad, months. But do they call me the shipbuilder? The guy says, no. No, they don't call me the shipbuilder. But you'll fuck just one goat. <laughs> that's, <clears throat> that's nasty. That's one of my favorites. And, Teresa, I was hoping maybe you could talk about the next thing I want to talk about. I wanted to bring up Osho. And uh, I really like the way he uses jokes. So can you uh, share any of your insights and opinions? Because you introduced me to Osho. Oh. And anything you want to say about Osho without getting too uh, deep into his philosophy or whatever. Well, Osho's this... Uh, Indian guy. He was too deep. Yeah, he was probably about I don't know in his fifties or so when he started really becoming a uh, a guru. And as a guru, I mean, most of the time people are like very respectful and reverent. And um, Osho would try to break that up, that seriousness and soberness, with a joke. And he was fairly masterful at kind of blanking your mind out, not necessarily because the jokes were so good, but just because you're sitting there and it's like very spiritual and and people are just like soaking up all of his wisdom. And then all of a sudden he tells this joke. Mm -hmm. And I really like the way, like, you know, he's getting into some deep philosophical stuff and it's just (laughs) interspersed with all these like kind of irreverent jokes. And he's 
I feel like he's kind of trying to point out, you know, like, don't take yourself so seriously. Like, a good dirty joke here and there reminds us to take ourselves lightly. Um, here's an Osho joke. This is one that, like, stayed in my head. <laughs> so a mom comes out, and she sees her son working on his homework. And uh, she kind of overhears him and is shocked to hear the son say, two plus two, the son of a bitch is four. Um, four <laughs> plus eight, the son of a bitch is ten. Four plus five, the son of a bitch. His mom comes in and says, wait, 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 where did you get that? What are you saying? And he says, that's the way they, they teach us to say it at school. And the mother is horrified. <laughs> so she immediately schedules an appointment with the teacher, has a meeting with her, and she sits down and she tells the teacher what her son's saying. And the teacher's baffled. I, we don't say that. What? I don't understand <laughs> where he got that. And then suddenly it dawns on the teacher and she begins to laugh and says, oh, Here's what we say in class. <laughs> when they go up on the board and they do their math problems, they have to say out loud, two plus two, the sum of which is four. <laughs> so that's an Osho joke. Um, a little bit later, you know, I, I learned to kind of enjoy, like, telling um, these white lies, these stories that are just, you know, a lot of us have that uncle that just tells us the most ridiculous crap. And we know he's full of crap, but we love him for it because it's a funny, entertaining story. It makes our lives more exciting. And when I was really young, I would not tell a lie. I took great pride in a rigid idea of truth. Um, as I got older, I started realizing that it's more the motivation of why you're lying. If I can tell a lie so ridiculous and so fantastic to kids, it's fun. It really, like, draws them in. It makes an adventure exciting. I remember uh, one woman I was dating, um, she had an eight-year-old son. And I was explaining to him one day, we were driving down the road, and I pointed to a herd of cows. And I was like, look at those guns. And he looks kind of confused at me, and he said, why do you call them guns? And I said, well, you know what a baby pig is called, right? And he said, uh, piglets? And I said, right. And I said, so what do you think a baby bull is called? And, you know, he thought about it and he said, bullet? <laughs> and I'm like, exactly. And we all know bullets come out of guns. Wow. So, yeah, that's a lot of fun nice. messing with kids' heads. <laughs> um. For a while, I started telling stories. You know, I used those jokes and then, you know, started opening it up to telling all kinds of stories at camp. And I got pretty good. And uh, a woman that was running a camp noticed um, how much I liked telling stories and how much the kid liked it and tried to encourage me and, like, started giving me gigs. So for a very short while, I tried being a professional storyteller, and it terrified me. Mm. Well, I'm getting up in front of people. Um, there was something about the performance aspect. It's different when you're in an intimate circle with kids out in the woods and you're telling a relevant story to getting up on stage with the lights on you and, you know, telling it to these adults. It just was not me. I was, I was a fish out of water. And I ended up taking a class with her, a storytelling workshop, and we had to pick a story and work on it and then invite people and perform and tell them the story. Oh my God, I bombed it so bad. That was the first time that I really knew that I had um, social anxiety. That was where it started. And from there, like, it just kind of broke me down for a while. I couldn't be around people, not immediately, but that was the first sign is I couldn't tell stories. I lost the ability to tell stories. And um, it still has changed the way I relate to stories. Um, 
one of the things that when I started having the social anxiety, you know, our culture teaches us, take the drugs, um, get the help, get right back to where you were, jump right back in there because that's normal. Whatever's happening is a mistake. It's bad. It needs to be fixed. And um, I started thinking about, this is kind of me choosing my story here. Am I going to choose a story in which I need help and go down that road? Or am I going to choose a story in which something is happening to me for a reason and follow it? Maybe I'm not broke. And so I followed that, and that led to a lot of scavenging. And I don't think I'd be uh, where I am today, at least not exactly the same way I am, um, without choosing that story. The story that I'm not broke. Um, You're getting there. <laughs> hmm? You're getting there. Yeah. I'm pretty close to broke. Um <laughs> And yeah, that was really powerful for me, you know, to, that was one of the times in my, on my own that I realized I'm inside of a story, you know, what Daniel Quinn and Don Miguel Ruiz were pointing us to. Um, and, you know, I think about going down that other road, you know, medications and counselors and psychiatrists, and it makes me think of a few of my uh, favorite psychiatrist tr- jokes. Um, there's one where a man goes to see his counselor, his therapist, and uh, they're doing the ink blot, the Rorschach test. And the counselor holds up a picture and says, what do you see here? And the man says, oh, that's a pair of boobies. And uh, <laughs> the counselor puts down the picture and says, well, what do you see there? Wow, that is a woman spread eagle in front of me, naked. And the counselor puts down that picture and holds up another one and says, well, what do you see here? And he's like, oh, that's an orgy. There's people having sex everywhere on that picture. <laughs> and the counselor puts down the picture and says, sir, um, it appears that you are addicted to sex. And the man says, me, you're the one carrying around the dirty pictures. <laughs> and my other favorite one where uh, a guy walks into a psychiatrist's office and he says, I'm a teepee, I'm a wigwam, I'm a teepee, I'm a wigwam. And the psychiatrist says, no, no, you're not. You're t- just too tense. <laughs> Boom. Oh, man. Um, my mom <clears throat> taught me the survival value of humor. And jump in here, Teresa. <laughs> okay. I'm going to lose my voice. Hmm. So... <clears throat> You know, my mom is somebody who had a lot happen in her life that uh, there was a lot of things that she could have not laughed at. But growing up, I laughed a lot. You know, my my childhood was hard. Hers was harder. And she taught me the survival value of having humor. Like, you can choose to laugh at things. And you need to laugh at things sometimes. And that's something that stayed with me, and uh, I would put right up there with shelter, water, fire, food, with uh, gratitude, with so many other things we've talked about. Humor. You need humor. You've got to be able to laugh, especially at yourself. Um, I remember growing up with this kind of ethic of, like, you know, just finding things to laugh at and um, finding ways to laugh at things. And when I was going to high school, I was only showing up for school every other day. I was uh, doing my second year in the ninth grade. And I was just waiting until they kicked me out. I'd go there to hang out with my friends. I wouldn't do any schoolwork. And uh, the principal would bring me in really often to talk to me. And he'd say, you know, you test pretty high on, on uh, you score pretty high on tests and everything. Like, I can see your potential. Don't you worry about your future? What do you plan on doing? Um, why aren't you trying? And I would tell him, well, all I really want to be is a hobo. And if I graduate high school, all the other hobos are going to think I'm uppity and won't want to talk to me. <laughs> and uh, it must have amused him somewhat because he kept calling me into the office. And I'll never forget this one teacher who also had a really great sense of humor. Um, it was the end of the year, and we were at the school assembly where they gave out all the awards. And, of course, I'm not thinking I'm getting an award for anything. 
and um, hmm. sitting there in my leather jacket, you know, all rebel without a cause. And uh, suddenly they call my name up there, and I got to walk up there, and they give me a certificate, and everybody's looking at each other like, that guy, what the hell did he get an award for? And the award was for maintaining the same grade point average all year. Now, what she didn't <laughs> say at the assembly was that that grade point average was a zero. Ooh. So I always appreciated her and her sense of humor. Um, Everyone's a winner. <laughs> and there was this bookstore that I used to go to before I uh, was such a freegan and tried to, you know, new ways to get books for free. So I'd order all these new books I wanted, field guides and stuff. And I went up to the desk and... I gave him my name as Gumby Day Me. You know, I was going by, like, when I'd write my name, I'd write Gumby Damn It, like the Saturday Night Live thing. But I told told them my name was Gumby Day Me. The T is silent. It's a French name. And that just amused the hell out of me because they had to know I was full of crap. And yet they couldn't risk it because I'd go in there with a straight face, you know, like no, no sign that I was kidding. And I realized after a few books that they had written in parentheses phonetically spelled out so nobody would offend me and get it wrong day me <laughs> and it it would just like i would always leave laughing carrying that book you know like <laughs> seeing that strained expression on the person at the bookstore like oh this guy's full of shit but i can't risk it <laughs> mr day me this is your book um dan millman writes in way of the peaceful warrior Life has three rules, paradox, humor, and change. Paradox, life is a mystery. Don't waste your time trying to figure it out. Humor, keep a sense of humor, especially about yourself. It is a strength beyond all measure. Change, know that nothing ever stays the same. And I love that, you know, right up there with the three most important rules of life is humor. Um... And speaking of humor, and especially humor about yourself, laughing mm. about yourself, there's some stories that could either be the most embarrassing event of your life that could cripple you, or <laughs> that if you have the power of humor, you can turn it around to something that you, uh, you know, tell around a campfire and just, like, has everybody feeling better. So, Teresa? Oh, boy. That's setting me up. So, yeah. You know what story I'm asking for? So I was in college, and um, I was still living with my parents just to save money. And, um, well, it was midterms week, and I was in the middle of a math exam, and um, I really felt like I had to go to the bathroom. And so I went, you know, asked the professor if I could leave, go to the bathroom. He said, okay. And I go to the bathroom, and it's in this round building on NC State's campus here in North Carolina. And if anybody's ever been to NC State, um, Harrelson Hall. <laughs> so the bathrooms are kind of weirdly shaped because it's in this round building. And um, anyway, so I'm in there, and I'm just, like, kind of waiting for things to happen. And they start <laughs> to happen. And, you know, keep in mind that there's a midterm going on. Like, every minute I'm in the bathroom is one less minute. I can spend trying to solve these math problems. So I'm like, oh my God, it's like halfway. What do I do? And so I had a phone in my pocket and I called my mom <laughs> and I said to her, mom, 
And my mom's like, Teresa? And I said, yeah, mom. And she's like, what is it? What's the matter? And I, I said, I, I can't, I can't go. It's <laughs> <laughs> she's like, go where? And I'm like, no, mom, listen, I, and I'm in the public bathroom, you know, I'm like, I can't go. And she starts cracking up <laughs> on the other line, on the other side of the phone. Cause she's like, are you serious? You called me? Because you can't make a poopy. <laughs> and I'm like, look, I'm it's in the middle. I'm in the middle of a test, and I just, I'm kind of just asking for some advice. Like, has this ever happened to you? Like, what do you do? Do you just like wait for it? Do you reach back there and jiggle things? Like, <laughs> what do you do? And my mom is just like stifling her laughter, and she's just like Teresa. Oh my god. And to this day. My mom brings it up, and if I ever call her, she'll, you know, say, like, what is it? Are you in the bathroom? <laughs> so, yeah, so that's my funny story. And you know what? I made it back to the exam, and I actually didn't do too bad, but uh, I was constipated for a long while. <laughs> and that makes me think of another story of a man who's got nothing to laugh about because he's led a life of crime, and he dies, and he goes to hell. And, um... You know, he meets the devil there, and the devil's like, hey, welcome to hell. The bad news is you're in hell for eternity. The good news is you get to choose your hell. So step right over with me, and we'll look what's behind door number one. And he opens door number one, and there's a bunch of people standing on their heads on a hardwood floor for eternity. And the devil says, that's door number one. Would you like to see door number two? And the guy says, yeah, show me door number two. So he takes him over to door number two, opens it up, and there's a bunch of people standing on their heads for eternity on a concrete floor. And the devil says, there's door number two. Now, would you like to see door number three? And the guy says, yeah, show me door number three. And he opens the door, and there's a bunch of people knee-deep in shit, but they're drinking <laughs> coffee. They're just, like, sitting there sipping coffee, you know, talking. And the guy's like, well, you know, considering the choices, I mean, it smells like shit in here, but, you know, the people seem to be enjoying their coffee. I think this might be my best option. I'll take door number three. And the devil says, good choice. Welcome to your eternity of hell. And the guy walks in there, and they give him a cup of coffee. And he's standing there, knee-deep in shit. And then he hears a, whoo! All right, everybody, coffee breaks over. Back on your heads. Oh, no! <laughs> <laughs> Now, while we're talking about shit, because what is it about shit? Shit's kind of funny. It is until things happen, like you can't go. Yeah, there are times that shit is not funny. <laughs> I will agree with that. Um, many years ago when I was younger, I was working for the Department of Transportation. And uh, it was our, you know, we'd go and work on bridges. So we'd tear apart old bridges, build new bridges. It was grueling, hard work, and I hated it. Our morning routine was all the work trucks would go to the local grocery store and people would get their little like pack of nabs, their Mountain Dews, their Dr. Peppers, their Twinkies, their honey buns. And the guy I was riding with, um, <laughs> I really hated getting put with this guy. Of all the people I worked with, I did not like this guy. He was this like white guy with a handlebar mustache. It was one of these like redneck, like, you know, just takes himself very seriously, tough guy kind of guy. He was no fun. Um <laughs> He gets in the work truck and he's driving. He's got his Mountain Dew and his honey bun. 
and uh, I got to fart really bad. <laughs> and like, you know, especially back then, I was not comfortable just to like, you know, lift up a butt cheek. Not like it is Wah! now. Yeah, I've gotten more comfortable. Yeah. But uh, so I decided to kind of sneak it out. And what is it about like sneaking it out that sometimes seems to make them worse? <laughs> I wonder if anybody studied this, but... I just lean a little bit, and, you know, that hot steam fart, like, whoa, that's going to be a bad one. But, you know, so I roll down my window. I'm like, I think it'll escape before it does any harm. And the guy right at that moment is opening up his honey bun. And that fart reaches him just at the same moment (laughs) that he bites into that honey bun. And the expression on this guy's face, he said, Oh, man, this honey bun tastes like shit. <laughs> and he throws the honey bun out the window, oh. package and all. Oh, God. And I'm like, I'm not sure whether to just fucking laugh my ass off or whether to be mortified. Oh, man. But, yeah, that was <laughs> that was a, a scene I'll never forget. Yeah, I, I made the mistake of telling Gumby in the beginning of our relationship, like, a well-timed fart is funny. And uh, now he's just searching for his timing. Timing. All the time. Hmm. Every night. Yeah, well, you've been blaming the dog for three years, but <laughs> we'll let that go. Um, it's only been two. Okay. Here, <laughs> here's another shit story. Oh. So there's a store way out in the country next to the Indian reservation. And uh, this old Indian that, of course, they call Chief, mm. comes in and does his grocery shopping. And uh, the store clerk one day says, hey, we got this new uh, toilet paper that um, they're just kind of testing, you know, to see, like, how people like it or whatever. And they don't even have a name for it yet. So, Chief, would you mind trying out this toilet paper? And, uh, you know, tell us what you think and what you might name it. And Chief says, okay. And he takes the toilet paper, goes, uses it, comes back in a few days. And uh, the clerk says, hey, Chief, um, what do you think of that toilet paper? Like, do you have any ideas for a name? And the Chief says, I call this toilet paper John Wayne. And the store clerk says, John Wayne, why? And the Indian says, because it's tough, gritty, and don't take no shit off no Indian. Awesome. (laughs) Love it. And Teresa, what's your second shit story? Oh, my second shit story. As if there were only two. Uh, Yeah. Well, I I have been to Nepal. You've been to Nepal? I have. And I stayed at this one particular hostel and the... The owner of it, he was really nice. Like, he would always be, like, playing card games with the people staying there and striking up conversations, smoking a little weed with them here and there. And and one day, he decided to just, you know, strike up a conversation with me. And I said, well, you know, I've seen a little bit of the town. He's like, well, come on, I'll, I'll show you the rest. So he had, like, a motorcycle and took me out. And and we stopped in this uh, this side street and got some street food and I had been staying away from it but the owner of the hostel was like oh you know trust me this is fine I have them dip it again in the hot grease so that you can be sure that if anything any flies have landed on it it's it's perfectly clean now it's perfectly safe so I believed him and I I had some little fried street food in Nepal and I get back to the hostel and I feel like oh, well, there's some people hanging out at the table. Maybe I'll strike up a conversation. And they were from somewhere, the UK or something. And they had a really interesting accent. And they're telling me all about their adventures and highlights of their days here in Nepal. And I was like, wow, this is a really great conversation. 
I'm starting to feel like I need to go to the bathroom. I'm thinking this to myself. <laughs> and um, so it like gets progressively worse, as I'm sure most of our listeners, at least um, some of them, have run into. So I like. And if you haven't called Teresa's mom, she can help you out. Yeah. Um, so I decide I'm going to like prolong the conversation by just holding really tightly onto that turd and, <laughs> and even putting a stopper up there, um, like with my heel, like sitting on my heel. I'm glad you elaborated. Yeah. Uh, although a stopper probably would have helped. So <laughs> finally it was getting pretty late and, uh, I really had to go to the bathroom and these folks were just so interesting and so cool. And I, I hated to say goodnight, but we parted ways and I quickly like went down the stairs and I was fumbling with my skeleton key to open up the door in the hostel. And I'm, I'm just like really trying to hurry. And it's like really frustrating because I'm having to jiggle the key in the lock and I'm, I finally get in and I open oh, jiggling up. Jiggling is not good when you oh, do this shit. And I, I open up the door and I'm like walking across the room to the bathroom and I shit my pants. <laughs> and it was right after like I had just gotten all my clothes washed and the next day I was having to fly home. So now I've got this <laughs> shitty pair of underwear. And damn it, I am not leaving a pair of underwear. <laughs> Everybody's coming back with me. so I, No underwear left behind. I washed them. Semper Fi. Yeah. <laughs> um, that reminds me of a story I heard a long time ago where this guy <laughs> has just started dating this girl. And uh, they're starting to get serious and everything. So the girl finally invites him over. And um, says, all right, like, I want you to meet my parents. And my dad, he's kind of a hard ass, so, like, he's going to be the one that's going to want to talk to you. So just, you know, behave yourself. Like, don't be worried. He's going to love you. So the guy goes over there, and the girl goes to help her mother in the kitchen. And the guy sits down on the, the couch, the little love seat, beside this dog, Roscoe. And uh, the father sits there and gives him a stern look and starts asking him questions, starts talking to him. And it's going okay. But uh, the guy realizes that he's got to fart really bad. And um, <laughs> so eventually, it. eventually it's not going to wait any longer. And the guy leans over a little bit and <laughs> lets it sneak out. And the, uh, the father looks at the dog and says, Roscoe! And uh, the, the boy thinks, oh, my God, I'm so lucky. He thinks it's the dog. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this night might not be ruined yet. And... Uh, as they get to talking, here's another fart, and he's like, Boop. and the guy is Roscoe! <laughs> and the guy is like, oh, thank God. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, not much longer. He's got to do it one more time. So he leans over and Boop. lets a little one go, and the, the man stands up and says, Roscoe, get off that couch for he shits on you! <laughs> <laughs> oh, that guy must have been eating the same stuff you do. <laughs> Touche. And speaking of humor as a survival tactic, um, it makes me think of the survival overnights. I used to do these survival overnights where I'd take people in the woods and we'd uh, take on survival challenges for from one to four nights. And, um, you know, like some nights I'd be out there and especially there were these two teenage boys that were brothers and they stuck it out all the way to the end. And so right towards the hardest ones at the end, it was often just the three of us. And um, I'd been teaching them since they were little kids, since they were about eight years old, and they were teenagers at this point. And we'd be out there on a cold winter night. Our shelter was crap. It wasn't working. We didn't get a fire. We didn't find anything good to eat. We're just basically leaning against our respective trees and, like, waiting for morning to come. And uh, here's that power of the story, of the short story, the joke. 
we'd start telling jokes and I would tell them dirty jokes that I wouldn't usually tell teenagers, but it's like, this is a survival (laughs) situation. Like I need something to rock us to like transport us away from here for a little while to, to encourage us to laugh when there's no damn reason to laugh, but to choose to laugh. And, um, I heard some really good jokes I'd never heard before during survival overnight. So there was this one anarchist that was like, um, he was dumpster diving before I was, he was like really grungy anarchist kind of guy. And he was coming to him, coming to the survival overnights. And he had some really good jokes. He actually taught me how to skin a squirrel too. But he, uh, he told me this one, two whales are at a bar. (laughs) One whale turns to the other and says, And the other whale looks at him and says, man, are you wasted? (laughs) And I told the teenage boys this one and they didn't get it. It became sort of like a Cohen. I was like, you keep working on this one and uh, eventually you'll understand it. They were so innocent. Yeah, it was like a year before one of them came and found me. He's like, oh, but it was how many mice does it take to screw in a light bulb? Two, but it's really hard to fit them in there. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and my favorite joke that I heard from a survive at a survival overnight. And according to the guy that told me, he's this teenager, um, that I had taught some classes at his school. And so he asked me like, you know, before I go into college, I want to actually started the survival overnights for him. And, uh, he was saying, I'd like to learn some survival skills. Like, what do you suggest? And I'm like, well, actually, I kind of have this plan in my head that uh, I haven't really done much with. But if you want to, we can do this together. And I think it's a great way to, like, learn real survival skills, not in an abstract way, but to do them. And, um, yeah, and I asked him, like, would you care if I invite other people? And so the survival overnights got started. But we're sitting around the fire one night, and he says that his friend made this up. He says, I was at a party one night and his friend starts talking and says, you know, one time there was this little boy named Timmy and he loved Bobo the Clown. He had Bobo the Clown bed sheets. He had a Bobo the Clown blanket. He had a Bobo the Clown clock on the wall that it had these two big clownish hands that would show the minute and the hour. And whenever it struck the hour, it'd go, ha, ha, ha. Oh, boy. He had a Bobo the Clown toothbrush that he put Bobo the Clown toothpaste on to brush his teeth every morning. He loved Bobo the Clown. Bobo the Clown was his hero. Nothing was better than Bobo the Clown. It was Bobo the Clown, Mom, God, Dad, the dog. (laughs) The sun rose on Bobo the Clown and the sun set on Bobo the Clown. Timmy loved Bobo the Clown. Well, one day the radio was on in the house as Timmy's walking through, and they are giving away tickets, free tickets to a Boba the Clown show, if you could answer a few trivia questions about Boba the Clown. Oh, holy crap. Well, Timmy ate, breathed, slept, and shit Bobo the Clown. (laughs) And I mean it, because he had Bobo the Clown toilet paper. He called in, and he aced those questions right away, got the tickets, and he was so excited. So excited. He was going to get to go to the Boba the Clown show. And he waited for two weeks. Oh, my God, the longest two weeks of his life. He'd go to school. His his schoolwork took a nosedive. He, he couldn't focus on anything but his excitement. He was going to meet God, also known as, as Bobo. Bobo the Clown. <laughs> 
Those weeks stretched by. His parents tried to get him to do his homework, and he would do some chicken scratch, but nothing really meaningful. Nothing worked. All he could think of was Bobo the Clown, until finally the big night. His parents drive him to the Bobo the Clown uh, performance. He goes in there, and he's got a front row seat. Well, he's waiting, and suddenly the lights come on. And here's Bobo the Clown on a unicycle in all of his polka dot clothes and his giant shoes, his bright red red and white and black makeup, his big clownish hair, and he's juggling. He's riding a unicycle and he's juggling four, five, six, then seven, eight, nine balls, and then a flaming bowling ball, and then knives. He's juggling them all. And then he just throws them away, does a backflip, and he's on the stage. Bobo the Clown, larger than life, right there in front of Timmy. My God. Bobo. Bobo. Bobo starts performing magic tricks. He pulls quarters out of here. He pulls cards out of there. He gets people to guess a card, and he always knows what it is. Bobo the Clown does gymnastics. He does flips. He does four back flips in a row, and then jumps and does another three, right, before without even taking a break. Boba the Clown takes these balloons, blows them up, makes all these balloon animals, makes balloon animals with other balloon animals, makes a herd of balloon animals, balloon animals making love to each other, balloon animals doing all kinds of things. It's fantastic. It was the best night of Timmy's life. And as the night's wrapping up, Boba the Clown looks out at the audience and says, can I get a volunteer? Timmy's hand shot up so fast and so hard, he almost knocked it out of socket. He's like, oh, oh! He's wiggling his hand. And Boba the Clown says, you. Out of all these people in the town, Boba the Clown points at Timmy. Timmy walks up on the stage. It's like he's in a dream. He can't believe it. He goes up on there, and there, larger than life, bigger than God, smelling like cotton candy and taffy. It's Bobo the Clown. Bobo the Clown says, Hi, little boy. Are you a donkey? And Timmy says, No, Bobo the Clown. And Bobo the Clown says, Well, that's funny because you sure look like an ass to me. And the crowd uproars. Laughter. Everybody's laughing and laughing at Timmy. Timmy's heart breaks. He can't believe his idol, the favorite person he's ever had in his life, the love of his life. Bobo the Clown just embarrassed him in front of his whole town. Mm. How could he do that? Everybody's having such a good time as the show closes, they don't realize the tears streaming down Timmy's cheeks. Mm. His parents pick him up and, well, what's wrong, Timmy? And Timmy won't talk about it. (laughs) They drive him home. Timmy goes and he rips the sheets off his bed, the Bobo the Clown sheets, the Bobo the Clown comforter. He throws them in a pile in the backyard, takes his dad's lighter and burns them. He takes the Bobo the Clown toothpaste and empties it all out in the toilet and shoves the Bobo the Clown toilet paper right behind it and flushes it, much to his mom's uh, annoyance, (laughs) throws out anything that's got Bobo the Clown. He hates Bobo the Clown. In his heart, his heart that was so full of love for Bobo the Clown... All he has is bitterness and anger and spite. And he decides that day that no matter what happens before he dies, he will get even with Bobo the Clown. So as Timmy gets older, as soon as he's old enough, he enlists in clown school. He goes off to clown college. Oh, he learns how to juggle. He learns magic tricks. He learns how to apply the makeup. He learns how to tell jokes. He learns timing. 
Um, he takes a class here in blonde jokes. He takes a class here in Pollock jokes. He learns them all. <laughs> but the one thing he studies is comebacks. Ooh. He focuses on comebacks like no one ever has before. He's a prodigy in comebacks. He writes essays. He dissects every comeback that has ever been given in the history of comedy. Tears them apart, puts them back together, and improves them. He is the Mozart, the Beethoven of comebacks. They call him the comeback kid. (laughs) Well, he graduates with honors from clown school, and he bides his time. He does a little birthday party here. He goes over here when the circus comes through town and maybe does a little cameo there. Makes a pretty good name for himself, but he's not really ambitious. He's not really trying to be out there. He's biding his time. Until one day, the Bobo the Clown Show is coming back through Timmy's town. Well, Timmy, now a young man, buys two tickets, front row seat. The night comes, he walks to his seat, he plants his ass right in that seat, and he waits, and the lights come on. And here comes Bobo the Clown on a unicycle, juggling, flaming, bowling balls, knives, eight, nine, ten balls, backflips, Cards, coins, coming out of every place. Gym magic tricks. Balloon animals doing obscene things to each other. (laughs) Just one thing after the other. It's a fantastic show. Boba the Clown is the clown of all clowns. Timmy, while everybody's laughing, just sits there. He doesn't laugh. Mm. He waits. Boba the Clown gets to the end of the show, looks out at this ocean of people, and says, can I get a volunteer from the audience? Timmy doesn't even let him finish his sentence. He starts walking up there. <laughs> he walks right up on that stage. Bobo the Clown's kind of surprised, like, oh, okay. And so Bobo the Clown leans over towards Timmy and says, pardon me, sir, but are you a donkey? And Timmy says, nope. <laughs> And Bobo the Clown says, well, that's funny because you look like an ass to me. And the crowd laughs and laughs. But Timmy, he's mastered the arts of comedy. He knows timing. He lets the laughter do its thing. It wears out. It settles down. And as soon as everybody can hear it, Timmy chooses his moment. He points at Bobo the Clown. And after all these years of studying comebacks, he delivers his finest work. He says, fuck you, Bobo. (laughs) I don't even know why that's my favorite joke. (laughs) But there's just something about it. I like exclaiming, fuck you, Bobo, at random moments. (laughs) (laughs) Once it gets in there, it stays. Fuck you, Popo. And I think of uh, like other times that I've used humor as survival. Like when I was doing electrical work and... uh, You know, we were all smoking so much weed on this job site. This job site was full of drug dealers and ex-convicts, people that couldn't get get work anywhere else. Hobos, um, they just would work at this electric company. And I don't know how the hell they stayed in business because, like, hardly any work got done. But I used to joke that the drug test at this place is they'd fire up a joint in the van, and uh, if you didn't smoke, you failed. Um, there was this one guy I worked with. We called him Big Dog because he was a big, fat guy. And he had this always wore these shirts that were from this line of shirts made for fat guys called Big Dog. And it was kind of meant to feel make you feel like tough for being a fat guy. You know, it was this big dog doing really like cool shit like riding a motorcycle or, you know, walking around with a gun or something. It was the Big Dog line of clothes. And so we called him Big Dog. 
Um, and we love this guy. This guy was just like so funny. He would come in with a big, one of those big Slurpee cups from a, like you get at a gas station oh God, for a soda, but it was full of straight up whiskey. <laughs> and all this guy had in his toolbox was a bong. Oh my God. And he would just stand around all day and he kept us laughing so hard that nobody even noticed that he did not do a bit of work. I mean, not a single bit. <laughs> That was a benefit for the workers. (laughs) When we were out on the slab before the walls got built, we'd fight over the right to, like, work next to him because he cast so much shade. It was the only way to get out of the damn sun. (laughs) And we would get so stoned on this job. I remember one day I got so high that, like, I forgot I had a joint in my mouth and walked right into the middle of the job. (laughs) And, like, you know, (laughs) Big Dog was the one that told me, man, you got a joint in your mouth. Is your ass that high? (laughs) You are ta- retarded. That's tarted and tarted again. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, big dog, man. We had so much fun at that job. Using humor as a survival tactic. Um, and I started writing this graffiti about the boss on that job. And, like, it was really, like, I'd draw a picture of him, like, fucking himself and say, Hey, go fuck yourself. <laughs> and it was all fine and good until it got pointed out that I had the only color marker. Yeah of that color on the job site and we wore it on our hats. So (laughs) it was pretty easy to trace it back to me. And another day we were smoking weed on the way back from the job. And uh, we were all so high that we saw this ice cream truck and I was the driver that day. And I pulled in front of him and like put on the brakes and pulled this ice cream (laughs) truck over. You never said saw Mexican so scared in your life. And uh, we just got out and like, Hey man, can you sell us some ice cream? And he's like, well, okay. (laughs) You know, he sold us some ice cream. And uh, it didn't even occur to me until, like, the next day when we were talking about it, that, that was a weird thing to do, to pull over an ice cream truck. Oh, but, a citizen's arrest. But, yeah, that was one of the times I laughed the most in my life. <laughs> Drugs were involved. Um, and, you know, humor is a survival tactic. I love the way jokes kind of help us laugh at things that would otherwise be really serious. Like, like when the old man went to the doctor and, uh, you know, the doctor says, well, I've got... Um, let's see, I've got good news and bad news and the, no, he says, I've got bad news and worse news. (laughs) And the old man says, well, what's the, uh, what's the, the bad news? And he says, well, you've got Alzheimer's disease. And he says, oh, well, what's the, what's the worst news? And he says, well, you've got cancer. And the old man says, well, at least I don't have cancer. Oh. <laughs> oh. And another time that I think of is like a funny time. Teresa, maybe you want to tell this one. Sure. We were uh, we were living still at our trailer in North Durham, and uh, we would drive past this park that um, Gumby used to be a caretaker at, right? Yep. And I used to teach there. Yeah. And so Gumby, you know... We both have kind of a connection to this park. It's also where we uh, go to bathe sometimes. And it had just rained like hell. I can't remember if it... I think it was a tropical storm or something moving through, but it had rained more than we had ever seen in our lives. And as we drove past this park, uh, we got to thinking, I wonder how high the river has gotten. And the park... To all that we could see, we saw the main gate. It appeared to be closed, so we thought we had it to ourselves. So we walked from our car down to the river, and uh, it was very full. So we decided 
uh, that we would go to the other side, not through the river because that was too dangerous. But I think we like went over the bridge. But once we walked across the bridge, um, we found that the river had gone over its banks well into where people normally have their picnics and, you know, everything else just sitting out in the sun and everything. But it was covered in water. And so to keep our clothes from getting drenched, we basically stripped down to our underwear and held our clothes above our heads as we then gingerly walked through, waded through the floodwaters. Um, and about halfway through the water, we, um, I saw a family, like I saw a mom and a little, little boy, I think. And, uh, and then a father and then a woman with a clipboard. And we were like, Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, I was like, let me do the talking, because I'd figure it out by then that, like, having confidence was one of the best tools you can have. And, and it was interesting to try to, like, summon this confidence <laughs> as we're walking through floodwaters in our underwear. And Sherlock, our dog, was swimming right next to us. So we're uh, we're approaching the, the other bank where there's a family waiting and this woman that looks very um, authoritarian. And we just... Uh, <clears throat> Did you say why we were in our underwear? Well, I said we stripped it down so we wouldn't get our clothes wet. Yeah, we were carrying our pants, like, above the water line. Yeah, and so we get to the other bank, and Gumby talks a, a good talk, and all we get is a warning to make sure our dog's on a leash as he's swimming next to us in the water. Yeah, the woman is so, like, puzzled by these two people coming out of the floodwaters in their underwear because she couldn't see at the bottom half of us. And that all she can think of to say is, uh, sir, um, you need to have your dog on a leash. And I'm like, well, as soon as we get out of the floodwaters, I'll put him on a leash. Um, Good times. Yeah, and, you know, I'm telling all these jokes about, like, Indians and um, hobos and shit like that. And it's so easy, especially nowadays, to be offended. And... One of the things I love that I read in uh, the Carlos Castaneda books as he's learning the uh, the Yaqui way of knowledge is he's told that self-importance is our greatest enemy. He's even encouraged, he's even told that to become a person of knowledge, you need to find a petty tyrant. In other words, a perfect enemy. And I've read this in Buddhism too. You need to find somebody to challenge you, to draw out your self-importance, to offend you. Because until you face that down, you'll never be, as they say, nothing. And when you become nothing, then you become everything. Mm. Um, It's the gateway to wisdom, to face down your own self-importance. And I just find that to be such a powerful idea, that the self-importance is our greatest enemy. And this is another thing I think jokes really do for us. Like, uh, you know, like if you ask, how do you know the toothbrush was invented in West Virginia? I don't know how. Because if it, was, if it was invented anywhere else, it would be called the teeth brush. Uh, now, if you're somebody that takes a lot of pride in West Virginia, you're from West Virginia, and you're really self-important, that's offensive. To somebody who's not <laughs> invested in that identity, it's funny. Um, Castaneda says in one of his books, self-importance is our greatest enemy. Think about it. What weakens us is feeling offended by the deeds and misdeeds of our fellow men. Our self-importance requires that we spend most of our lives offended by someone. How many people spend their lives offended by something or someone, including myself? And what a waste of energy it is. If there's action necessary, take action. But to waste your time just feeling offended? 
it's a complete waste of time. It's a complete waste of activity. Um, my favorite blonde joke is this blonde walks into a library and she goes up to the librarian and she says, excuse me, like, I would like like a cheeseburger and like an order of fries <laughs> and like a chocolate milkshake. And the librarian says, ma'am, you are in a library. And the blonde says, oh, I would like like a cheeseburger and an order of fries and a chocolate milkshake. Um, I love that one. And Daniel Quinn also weighs in on the self-importance when he says, the people of your culture cling with fanatical tenacity to the specialness of man. They want desperately to perceive a vast gulf between man and the rest of creation. This mythology of human superiority justifies their doing whatever they please with the world, just the way Hitler's mythology of Aryan superiority justifies his doing whatever he pleased with Europe. But in the end, this mythology is not deeply satisfying. The takers are a profoundly lonely people. The world for them is enemy territory, and they live in it like an army of occupation, alienated and isolated by their extraordinary specialness. Daniel Quinn's describing the same thing, the self-importance, let it go. Is the grass offended when you make a grass joke? Is the grass offended even when you walk on it? Why are we so damn much more important than the grass, than the deer, than the dogs, than the trees? Um, That self-importance doesn't fuel us for uh, a better life, a better way of being on the planet. I feel like it's exactly the opposite letting all the self-importance go. When you look around at our culture, it is an empire of self-importance. More self-importance, in other words, being offended, does not help. It's the same energy that's already there. It's just another drop of fuel in an already full bucket. Um, For instance, you know, like, as far as jokes go that may be offensive, here's one that I think is really funny. And, uh, I think anybody that's not caught up in their self-importance and looking for something to be offended about would also find the humor in this. Oh, boy. <laughs> Foreshadowing. So a little boy, a little Indian boy, asked his father, you know, they're living out in their tribe and their teepees, and he asked his father one day, um, Dad, how do we come up with names for people in our tribe? And he says, well, son, on the day that the child is born, I, the father, or whoever the father is of that family, will go outside. And the first object that he sees, the first thing that catches his, his, his eye and speaks to him, that gives us the name for the child. <laughs> and he looks down at his son and says, why do you ask two dogs fucking? <laughs> There's this Zen story I heard that uh, I thought was really good where... Uh, this guy is studying with his master, and he gets towards the end of his uh, apprenticeship under the master, and the master says, for the next three years, I want you to go live in town, and anytime somebody insults you or says something that offends you, you pay them money. Mm. You have to pay them. And the student spends three long years. Anytime somebody jumps him in line, uh, cuts him off in traffic, um, pretty much anything that offends him, that he feels that feeling of, ah, I'm offended, he goes over there, and gives the person a dollar. As you can imagine, he didn't accumulate a lot of money in those three years. Well, after that, time is up. Um, He goes to another town to travel and buy groceries from uh, the produce center there, and 
as he's traveling, there's a sage in front of this these gates of this town, and he's shouting insults at everybody, like, Oh, you fat cow! Oh, you hurt my eyes to look at you! Sir, is that your mother or your sister? It can't be your wife! Yeah. Oh, my God! Did you dress like that? Are you blind? Did your mother dress you? Is she blind? Just all day shouting insults at everyone that comes to the town. And uh, the people just ignore him and, you know, write him off as a crazy person. But the student, as the the master is shouting, the sage is shouting insults at him, um, begins to laugh uproariously. And he walks up to the sage and embraces him and says, Oh, this is so, so great. What I've had to pay for for years, you give away for free. (laughs) And the sage looks at him with a knowing smile and points to the town and says, My son, the town is yours. Wow. And I love the wisdom of that. You know, the self-importance, let it go, man. If you can just like face down that thing that rises up when you feel offended and get past it, wow. Those are the gates to the town, the city. Um, hey, Teresa. Yes, Gumby. What do cowboys feed their horses on Brokeback Mountain? What? Hey! Yeah. <laughs> Tyler Durden from Fight Club uh, says it in his own unique style when he says, You are not a beautiful or unique snowflake. You are the same organic decaying matter as everything else. Mm. In other words, get over yourself. Um, I remember I was dating this one woman from Israel for a while. We had an interesting relationship. We basically just got together and like, it was kind of, uh, uh, our relationship was just about sex and she was also interested in primitive skills. So we'd get together and I'd teach her something like how to twist cordage out of dog bane, dog bane bark. And then we go in the woods and screw basically. But one day, um, she tells me, you smell like a goat. <laughs> she started sounding Scottish. First. You smell like a goat, laddie. <laughs> I'm from the Israel Scots. <laughs> Imagine one. my alarm. And uh, at first, you know, thinking of the self-importance, I was kind of offended. Like, you know, in America, somebody tells me I smell like livestock. It's like, damn, you know, you couldn't (laughs) find a nicer way to say that. But she was giving me a compliment. She said it reminded her of her childhood. It was sort of like if somebody from America said, you remind me of like my mom, my my grandma baking cookies. You know, that was the equivalent to her. Mm. So that that was to me was like one of those funny times. It's like. I got off- I felt for a moment offended, but I misunderstood, you know, the intention, <laughs> the whole like that whole thing about self-importance. Um, I used to work with this one teacher. We were teaching partners. We even lived together for a while. And for all her many good attributes, an organizer, uh, a lot of wisdom, a lot of things to share with primitive skills, she took herself so seriously. And me being the kind of person I am, I couldn't help but hit that button. It just was like this big red button that said, don't push. And I'm like this little kid, like, beep, 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 Mm -hmm. the self-importance. So we'd lead these backpacking trips. And uh, just to bug her to get under her skin, I started learning all the blonde jokes I could and turned them into, uh, I'm not going to give her name, but I used her name. Let's call her Alice. I turned them into (laughs) Alice jokes. Hey. <laughs> so, like, Alice walks into a library and says, I would like, like, a cheeseburger, mm-hmm. etc. And then I started telling jokes about myself, but Chuck Norris jokes. Oh. So instead of Chuck Norris, Gumby. Gumby. Do you know any Chuck Norris jokes? No, I've heard them, but I, I do not retain information anymore. 
I love them, but I can hardly like ever. The only one I can remember right now is, did you know that Chuck Norris's tears cure cancer? Yeah, that's that's about the gist of it. Too bad he never cries. Oh. <laughs> uh, it reminds me of another blonde joke where a blonde is like, um, at this like sexual conference where they're talking about like the different ways you can have sex and how it influences the kid you're going to have. And uh, he's looking at one woman and he's saying, uh, how did you conceive your child? And she's like, well, I was on the bottom. And he's like, well, your child's going to be submissive. Um, you know, your child will have a lot of other gifts, but your child will be a supportive, somebody that like pushes from the bottom and, and really supports the people around them. And looks at the next woman and says, uh, how did you conceive? And she's like, well, I was on top. And he's like, your child's going to be really assertive, maybe a CEO <laughs> or a president, you know, somebody that takes charge. And uh, just as he's about to point to the blonde and says, how was your child conceived? The blonde bursts into tears and runs out of the room screaming, I don't want to have puppies. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so we wanted to get some white jokes. It occurred to me a while back that like, I don't know many white people jokes. Why is that? There's got to be funny shit to say about white people. I mean, we make fun of white people all the time. I watch black comedians. Like, we used to watch a lot of uh, Kevin Hart and Dave Mm -hmm. Chappelle. They got plenty of white people jokes. Why aren't we running into them? Um, And I got some theories about this, but I guess I'll I'll maybe get into my theories in a minute. But I want to hand this over to you, Teresa, because you did the research on this. And I was really interested... Not just the jokes, before you get into that, but what it said about white people. Oh, yeah, I um, I, I may let you down on this because I was in town, we were on Wi-Fi, I downloaded, when I say downloaded, I mean I went to a bunch of websites, opened them on my little phone that's not a phone, and then if you accidentally do anything when you're off of the internet, off of Wi-Fi, it like goes away. But I do remember the name of this New Republic article, I didn't get to read it, about white people co-opting racist jokes. And there was like a really good tag, like a sub-headline that was kind of funny, Um, but I fucked it up. So there you go. Well, I remember you talking about how there was like websites that were saying like white people can't take a joke. Yeah, there's a... um, when I Googled like jokes about white people, there were a lot of articles that came up that said, you know, why can't, this is the thing that it said, why can't white people take racist jokes about white people? And it's not even giving a chance for white people to say like, well, maybe we can, like maybe we have. Yeah. I just thought this was absurd because like, you know, as Teresa pointed out, Jeff Foxworthy, I, I went to school and grew up with a bunch of rednecks, and they loved his white jokes, his redneck jokes. You know, like, um, if your dog is on a, if your wallet is on a chain and your dog is not, you might be a redneck. <laughs> and if your home is mobile and your car is not, you might be a redneck. Both of those things have been true for me many times. And anybody that's kind of poor and out in the country, um, white people, black people, anybody, you know, they recognize the, the, familiarity with that. And we laugh. I just don't run into many white people jokes. It's not that I'm offended. It's that somebody come up with one. And, and the other thing about white people jokes, I guess that I read, you know, that is something to share is that a lot of times white people jokes make white people seem like, uh, rich and powerful and, uh, you know, all the things that 
we generally are. And so it's kind of like, (laughs) you know, just like reaffirming the place in the world of white people. So I'm not sure if they're looking for jokes that aren't doing that. Like redneck jokes, I think, are a totally different line of jokes. I think what puts white people in a different category in this is um, once you get past the white people can't dance kind of stuff, you know, it's sort of like... What can't white people do? (laughs) The colonizers have, like, forced everybody to play their game. And so I feel like as white culture... There's kind of this feeling of like, we already won the game. We didn't only win the game. We defined the damn game. We've so deeply defined the game that the only game you can even conceive of at this point is to get a place at our table, Mm -hmm. to be white people. And so I think there's sort of an element of like, when other people like this, actually, this got brought up in a conversation. People were like, how come there's no good derogatory term for white people? I can call them cracker. I can call them honky. I can call them wetico, but it doesn't really seem to offend them by calling a, a Chinese person a chink or a black person a nigger or anything like that. It doesn't carry the same stigma. Why is that? And I think it's this thing I'm describing. Um, it just seems like when somebody that's fighting to be you tries to insult you, it just feels like sour grapes. It feels like the kid that kind of lost, you know, didn't get picked for the team. It's like, well, yeah, you're stupid. (laughs) And I'm not saying that like, oh, the great white people. I mean, as anybody who listens to our podcast knows, Teresa and I are desperately trying to reject this madness. This is not a good thing. What white people won was a maniacal sickness Um, That's what we've developed, and that's what everybody else – it's not just a racial thing anymore. Everybody else is helping us develop, but I think this is why white jokes and white insults don't carry that same weight. But when I read that, like, white people can't take a joke, I just felt like that was ignorant. That's somebody who's not really, like, thought about what they were saying. Well, and I also felt like it was, you know, of course, propaganda, but what – like, making a deal out of something like that can do to race relations, you know, like, yeah, why can't white people take it? So wait wait a second, you're making an assumption right out of the gate. You're not even, you're not even like cracking any jokes. Like where's your, uh, experiment. Mm -hmm. And remember the black lives matter thing? Yeah. There was a black lives matter joke book, um, along with other resources for white people jokes. Um, and I guess, there was this ultimate joke book about white people, the special mayonnaise edition. I thought that was cute. Um, but yeah, they were doing a Black Lives Matter joke book for uh, raising money for for supporting um, black causes, I guess, like Black Lives Matter. So I don't know. That was just kind of weird. Yeah, I thought that was an extremely poor taste, not because I'm offended at white jokes. We're about to share some white jokes we thought were some of the better ones, but because... You know, when I counter Black Lives Matter and other people have said all lives matter, what they'll say is, well, it's not we're not being racist. You know what the the opponents that say all lives matter accuse the Black Lives Matter people of is this is racist. There's a lot of lives that matter. It's racist to say one one race of people the same way as saying like white pride, white lives matter. It's racist. And they're like, oh, no, no, this is not a racist movement. You're ignorant. Don't be ignorant. You don't understand. 
But then when I see something like this, and we didn't even look for this, by the way. I wasn't looking to say something bad about Black Lives Matter. It just was right there. And it's like, wow, you just proved the argument right. This is racist. You're not trying to move into a place where, like, we don't have racist jokes. You're saying, like, all right, let's get racist towards the white people. You're saying racism is fine. Let's just, like, flip. Let's use the same weapon. The weapon is not the problem. Let's just point it the other way. And I got a problem with that. I don't feel like that elevates us at all. It just dooms us to somewhere down the road, if Black Lives Matter is successful, that suddenly white people, after enough time has passed, after enough history is forgotten, that suddenly there's going to be White Lives Matter. <laughs> there's going to be the White Panthers. We're going to have to do all this shit again because we didn't learn. It's just stupid. And I, I couldn't believe that was out there and the, that the people in the Black Lives Movement don't call that out and say, that's really not the kind of face we're trying to put on our movement right now. Um, you know what I mean? I know what you mean. There actually was a group called the White Panthers. But um, let's see. Now that we're in a really serious place. <laughs> Lighten it up, Cracker. Uh, yeah. Get your honky ass everybody, some everybody knows there are certain words that only black people can say. But what are what what is a word or phrase that only white people can say? What? Thanks for the warning, officer. Oh. <laughs> oh. Um, what is white at the top and black on the bottom? What? American society. Oh, my oh. God. How many white people does it take to replace a light bulb? <laughs> How many? One to hold the bulb and the rest to screw the whole world. Oh, that might be my favorite. <laughs> What's the scariest thing about a white person in prison? No. <laughs> you know he did it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good one. And I guess uh, this one's relevant only because of uh, Jerry Falwell Jr. right now in the news. How do white guys satisfy their wives? How? They hire a pool boy. <laughs> that reminds me of uh, a joke. How? Let's see. What do snowboarders use for birth control? What? Their personalities. Ugh. So I was out true. west for a while. Most of the snowboarders I met were like real pretentious assholes. If you're a cool snowboarder, no offense. Or, considering the episode, maybe I do mean offense. <laughs> um, and I often wonder with this political climate, everybody being so sensitive and prickly, are we coming to the end of jokes? Are we going to get to a point like right around the corner? Is it already happening that we can't make jokes? Look at how many comedians, like things that 10, 20 years ago, we'd have laughed at. They were distasteful as hell. <laughs> but instead of being offended, like most people just like, oh, that's funny. Of course, that's not something that like you go and do out in the world. But it's funny because of a shock factor or just that we don't take ourselves that seriously. Look at how many comedians are getting in trouble now. Kevin Hart jokes about gay people. Remember when he was supposed oh, to host yeah. the Oscars or something? Yeah. And there was all that bullshit. Um I wonder if we're getting to the end of jokes because there's so many serious, self-important people. Everybody's standing up and like, you can say that about me. And that's really sad because I just want to jump in here, steal your thunder. Um, there is something like I alluded to earlier with Osho, like there's something that happens when you laugh and... It can be achieved by kind of fake laughter. I went to this laughter meditation thing one time, and I'll be honest with you, I thought it was uh, a little bit too close to, like, losing my mind. Um, <laughs> Is that what happened? Yes. 
but uh, but just laughing at a good joke, even like we talked about laughing at things where we're uncomfortable. Like, what does what does that mean? What does that do? And I think it's when you have a really good laugh, it empties your mind for that moment, that really quick second. Your mind is blank, mm-hmm. and if you're not allowing laughter into your life, that's another missed opportunity. And I feel like laughter is so healing. Like, I mean, there's mean laughter. There's definitely the laughter of like derisive laughter, but I'm talking about laughing together. Like jokes can encourage us to not take ourselves seriously. I've been around like mixed groups of people that racist jokes have been told and we all laughed um, because we recognize the elements of truth in it and the elements of just fiction, you know, nothing to get offended about. And I feel like that forms a bridge. We just watched this movie, Jojo Rabbit, that I loved. And it was this beautiful bridge between the absurd comedy, this kid that his imaginary like friend is Hitler. (laughs) And he's like walking down the road, giving Heil Hitler's like he's at Disneyland. I mean, it's hilarious, but it's also really dark, you know? I mean, you can't describe that period of history without talking about some dark shit. And I feel like that's what I'm talking about is like, that bridge, like the the laughter, the comedy, formed a, a human bridge, it brought a humanity to that, that if it had just been a dark movie, it wouldn't have been there. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the darkness excludes people, like the Black Lives Movement, uh, Matters Movement. That's racist. I've been drinking beer. So it excludes people. But to start laughing, to embrace all these jokes, not just white jokes, I would have applauded this site if it would have been white and black jokes. That would have been awesome. That would have been a move towards something that I think is like, let's stop taking ourselves so goddamn seriously. Let's laugh at the police. Let's laugh at the black people. Let's laugh at the white people. It doesn't mean we don't get up off our ass and do something. It means that if we don't laugh while we're doing it, what are we doing? I mean, that whatever comes next, I want there to be laughter involved in it. And if you can't laugh now, you're never going to be able to laugh. You're just not. Indeed. Did you have something you wanted to say? You look like you were waiting for me. Well, I've got a politically... Well, they call it a politically incorrect joke. All right, offend me. A, a worldwide survey was conducted by the United Nations. The only question that was asked on this survey was, would you please give your honest opinion about solutions to the food shortage in the rest of the world. The survey was a complete and total failure. In Africa, they didn't know what food meant. In Eastern Europe, they didn't know what honest meant. In Western Europe, they didn't know what a shortage was. And in China, they didn't understand the word opinion. In the Middle East, they didn't know what the word solution meant. And in South America, they didn't know what please meant. And in the United States, they didn't know what the rest of the world meant. That offends me, Teresa. <laughs> as an American, someone who's born on this soil. Uh, yeah, that's yeah, a that's, pretty good one. That's a, it's, a, it's not a super funny joke, but I like how it kind of pointed at all the continents. Yeah, and there's truth in it. I like that, too. You know, it points at, like, a weakness in all these different cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, Here's a geeky, like, naturalist joke that I heard that when I heard it, I was like, oh, man, only a naturalist will think this is funny. So if you're not a naturalist, you'll have to let me know if I'm right about this. But there were these two big stately trees in the forest, and one day they noticed this beautiful sapling growing between them. 
One tree was a birch. One tree was a beech. The birch tree looked down at that sapling and said, oh, that's a son of a birch if I ever saw one. Look at those leaves, so beautiful and vibrant. That is a proud son of a birch. And the beech said, no, 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 that's a son of a beech. Look at that bark and so stately and tall, reaching for the sun. Wow, that's definitely a son of a beech. And so these trees argued back and forth, son of a birch, son of a beech, son of a birch, son of a beech, until a woodpecker comes flying by. They say, hey, hey, woodpecker, come over here for a minute. And the woodpecker flies over and says, yes. And they say, woodpecker, would you please help us out? We cannot decide between ourselves whether this is the son of a birch or a son of a beech. And the woodpecker says, certainly. And he comes (laughs) down and he lands on the little sapling and he pecks ever so gently into the bark. And he tastes and he says, my friends, this is neither a son of a birch nor a son of a beech. This is the finest piece of ash I've ever put my pecker in. <laughs> that was a good one. And another highly offensive joke. What's green and smells like pork? Oh, what? Kermit the Frog's finger. Ew. Yeah. If you're a frog or a pig, I'm very sorry. And if you're a frog fucking a pig, what the hell is the matter with you? That offends me. That's interspecies love. And we're about to come to the end of this episode. Wow, it's turned into a long episode. So I just wanted to mention riddles real quick. It occurred to me one day as I'm studying like Zen Cohen's and everything, these puzzles that are meant to kind of shut down our minds to like make us see the limitations of our thinking process, um, that the riddle is sort of like, I feel like a lightweight modern Cohen. Um, you know, there's so many riddles I can think of, and kids love telling riddles. I've been on so many backpacking trips where, like, somebody comes out with a riddle, and we're thinking about that riddle for, like, the next two miles, <laughs> um, at least. And it empties your mind of other things. It does, and it points out a limitation in the way you're thinking. For instance, there are 26 sheep, four die. How many are left? I say 22. The answer is 16. Now, I'm not going to tell you why, but everything you need to know about why the answer is 16 for there are 26 sheep and four die is right there. And it works like a Zen Cohen. It points out something, a limitation in the way you think. Likewise, um, another favorite riddle is there are, um, let's see. Okay, 20 people jump into the pool. 24 heads pop up. How's this possible? And, you know, like what I do with the with the kids when we're talking about this, people say, well, did somebody have a baby? Did somebody blah, blah, blah? <laughs> you know, it's none of those things. But it's right there in the answer. It's, it's your thinking in a certain way, and the riddle is exposing something like, oh, you're not thinking outside the box. You're trapped in a box. Oh, I got it. I got it. I get it. Or this one. Spell mop. M-O-P. Spell crop. C-R-O-P. Spell shop. S-H-O-P. What do you do when you come to a green light? Uh, Oh, you thought about it. You got to do it quick. You stopped. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But I just love how this points out how our brains get trapped. And, uh, you know, one more, one more riddle. You're driving a bus. You go to a bus stop and you pick up four people. Four people get on. At the next bus stop, one person gets off. Further down the road, at a bus stop, 
12 people get on. You come to another bus stop, three more people get on. Oh, God, this is already too hard. And finally, at the last bus stop, only one person gets off. What person are the bus? What color are the bus driver's eyes? I have no idea. Really? Or are you just humoring me? I really don't know. All right, I'm gonna leave that. Anybody that like <laughs> this is recorded, so you'll be able to figure it out. But again, these riddles are brilliant, Cohen's. You can just think, ah, oh, that's clever. I didn't think about that. But it's exposing how we get trapped in thinking of one way. Yeah. It's exposing that one story we live in. That it's not the story. It's just our story. And our story is limited. I love that about riddles. And again, you know, escaping society, this is the kind of shit that when I'm out there in a backpack, I'm not sitting in front of a TV, um, that when Teresa and I are like on this overpass with our thumbs out waiting for a ride to stop, this is the kind of stuff that like engages us. This is the oral tradition. This is what's going to come back when all these devices start breaking down, as is already happening. The oral tradition is returning. And a big part of that is going to be jokes, funny stories, riddles. Um, like a woman walked into a bar and asked the bartender for a double entendre. So he gave it to her mm. or, <laughs> oh, this, I learned this one when I was a kid. A woman goes into a tattoo parlor and she wants to get a tattoo of Roy Orbison on one thigh and Elvis Presley on the inside of the other thigh. So the tattoo artist does his best, Roy Orbison, Elvis Presley, you know, she has to, like, take off her underwear and everything. Whoa. And, uh, yeah, I don't know why. And, uh, <laughs> so, you know, she looks at him, she's like, I don't know. I don't know if that really looks like Elvis Presley or, uh, or Roy Orbison. And, uh, the tattoo artist is like, all right, let's go find out. And he goes outside and there's a homeless guy sitting there. <laughs> homeless guy named Gumby. And he says, uh, can you come in here a minute? We need your help. And the homeless guy goes in there, and the woman's there with her legs up. And he says, can you tell me if you recognize who these people are? And he points to the woman. And the homeless guy squints his eyes and says, I don't know. Those two on the ends are kind of fuzzy, but that one in the middle is damn sure Willie Nelson. <laughs> I don't even know why that's funny, but it's always made me laugh. Um. <laughs> One more funny story. When I was uh, younger and we were getting into all kinds of trouble, like a couple of my friends stole this power wheel and they gutted it. They pulled off like power the battery. Wheel. Yeah, power wheel. What did I say? No, I was I was trying to define it for our listeners. What, do you want to define it? Pow, pow, power wheel, power wheels. Is that your definition? It was like this um, miniature car that ran on an electric battery that kind of rich kids had. And when you pull off all the stuff and let it free roll, it's basically just a little <laughs> cart with wheels. So we took it to this really big freaking hill near us that was uh, led to a, a reservoir. So it wasn't a lot of traffic on this hill. And whenever we get high and get messed up, you know, kind of looking for something to do, like, oh, man, like we're tripping acid or we're smoking weed or we're drunk. Like, what's something fun we can do? It's like the power wheel. Oh, my God. So we go up to this big hill. And we'd get on this power wheel, and we'd free roll. We'd take turns, like, getting on the power wheel and roll down this giant hill, free roll. And we clocked it one time. We followed it with a minivan, and it would go over 40 miles per hour. <laughs> oh, my God. And then and we this get... thing is, like, plastic. Yeah. 
and we get to, it was terrifying because you knew what would happen over 40 miles per hour if something happened and you knew the likelihood that something was going to happen oh, you know this rough road like were drugs involved uh, almost every time <laughs> almost without exception and so this guy with the minivan would open up the door and somebody would lean out the back and grab the feet of the person on the power wheel and drag it back up the hill oh god and that's like we'd hide it back in the woods until the next time we wanted to ride the power wheel and take turns and that was all fun and good until one day like one of my friends gets on that power wheel and uh this might not be funny to anybody else because I can picture it, but he's going down the hill on this power wheel. And then this cop that we didn't see zips past us and puts on his <laughs> lights and his siren like, and he's following this little power wheel down the road going over 40 miles per hour. And my friend is like, he can't look off the road, but he can see the blue lights. He knows he's getting pulled, but he can't look back at the cop because that would be certain death. <laughs> And there's no brakes there's on the no damn thing. Breaks. So the only thing he knows how to do is to try to pull over like he would in a regular car. And he's pulling over in the grass. And now it's really rough. Like, <laughs> boom, 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 boom. And he's just getting shaken all the crap. And, that, oh, my God, we laughed so hard. <laughs> Unfortunately, the cop confiscated our power wheel. So that was the end of that. And, uh, you know, I talked about in fire trucks given some of the things that sucked about getting older. Here's another thing about getting older. There's fewer jokes. You've kind of heard all the main ones you run into. And most of the ones you haven't heard, there's a reason you haven't heard them. They're not that good. So if you're young, if you're a teenager in your 20s and you're hearing these good jokes for the first time, enjoy that. Um, (laughs) There's a lifespan on that. And if there's any jokes we haven't shared that you think are like really good, please write in. I love learning new jokes. And don't write in with any hobo puke jokes. They're not funny. Oh, my God. We tried to look up hobo jokes, and, like, all of them either have to do with necrophilia or eating each other's puke. What's up with that? I'm offended. Yeah. No, I'm not offended. I just think there's, well. No, they weren't offensive, but they were just not funny. I mean, they weren't, they were just, like, gross, you know? (laughs) Until, like, one of us eats each other's puke, and then maybe we'll see the punchline. Like, oh, I get it. Oh, hot meal. Yeah, Teresa's hot meal. I got it. That sounds dirty. Yeah. <laughs> All right, one more, one more. So Gandhi was known for going around barefoot, and he developed really hard calluses on his feet. And because he fasted so often, he had kind of kind of a delicate constitution. Um, all this time fasting and meditating, like he had gained like great heights in his spirituality. Um. But one of the side effects of all the fasting is that sometimes his teeth would get kind of rotten and he had really bad breath. Mm. And because of all this, Gandhi was sometimes known as a super calloused, fragile mystic hexed with halitosis. Oh, that was good. Yeah. So for our listener write-in, we have Soria Rose from the Northwest Territory, Canada. All right. I'm going to try to do a light Canadian accent this time. Oh, boy. Hello, friend. It's Soraya Rose, or whatever feels right in the moment. I heckin' love your podcast. Y'all do great work. Sometimes gets me all ramped up and yelling and shit. Hopeful to know there's other hobos out there walking the real path. Honestly, if I find myself near the East Coast, I'll try and scoot to meet ya. Whether you both have lots of wisdom, sure you both have lots of wisdom. I got lots of wild stories of the journey... Hitchhiking, train hopping, hobo living freedom as a solo female. P.S. 
Would be honored to lean my dusty, swampy ass into an iPad at a park with you, guys, if it ever the opportunity presented itself, eh? <laughs> Biggest challenge I've encountered thus far was a murderer, perhaps a serial killer even, in the Arizona desert while hitchhiking. But we live and we learn, and it actually inspired me to live way more conspicuously. Try and hide less. Just exist as open and free as I can in an attempt to inspire others to live their true story. I got lots of experience living up in the woods near the Arctic, hunting very large game and tanning hides, and also have slept my little solo ass on Skid Row in downtown Portland, even been lost ten odd days in the forest eating mushrooms and rainwater. Not best with the mushroom identification. Saw bugs eating them and prayed. Went well, eh? Oh my god. <laughs> best advice I've got is to trust absolutely everyone until you've been given proof not to. And that's helped me confidently live my dreams. With blind faith, all will work out as it should. Also saved my life as I hitchhiked from Canada to Mexico with literally $40. Ha ha ha. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> my dumpster diving game isn't nearly as good as your guys seems to be. Best thing I found was a shitload of apples and a 10-pound thing of coconut oil. Laugh my ass off. Wow. Sorry. Sorry. If you also ever need anything, keep in touch. I haven't got much to offer except a damn full heart and a gross amount of messed up, almost unbelievable stories. And smiles and laughter, eh? <laughs> yeah, you betcha. So, kind of Minnesotan. Thank you, as always, for writing Soraya Rose. It sounds like your life is fantastic with, like, all kinds of stories. And uh, we can't wait to hear more. Is there anything you want to respond to any of that? Oh, I was curious, um, as a well, possibly soon to be solo female going out on whatever adventures in my life. Uh, <laughs> what does that mean to me? Well, no, I mean, like she mentioned that she was a traveling solo female. So I was going to say, I'd like to hear more about how, like, how does that look? Um, because I've traveled solo before, but not as like a hitchhiker or if she's saying she's not hitchhiking, like I'm, I'm just, I was just curious as to the details of that. Do you have a solo trip planned? Well, we were talking about like, you know, just different things in the future. I'm not saying I have anything planned. I'm just saying like what that looks like since she wrote it. Yeah. I'm curious too. Cause if I, uh, you know, I've always felt like it's dangerous for women to travel alone, but I know, you know, you're not the only woman I've heard of that does it. So any tips I think would really be helpful to share and, uh, wow, hide tanning and train hopping. I don't know anything about train hopping. I'd love to learn how that's done. I've always been intimidated by that. Um, and, yeah, if you ever find yourself in this neck of the woods, um, we would love to interview you and definitely learn anything that you can teach. Um, and hopefully we can trade, like, some knowledge there. But, uh, yeah, Teresa and I are talking about, like, you know, We've been living in a van for three years together. It's really... I was trying to kind of, like, encourage you to talk more about this. Like, no, it's I would not... imagine to a listener, it's like, solo trip, what? It's not even been two years. Well, all right, ten years together <laughs> in a van. Ten in long van... years together in a in van. van time, van life. So we are discussing taking, like, you know, it's kind of this codependent relationship that, like, there's a lot of good aspects, but also we think it's healthy, like, to go do your own thing a little bit. You know, you, you kind of... Both Teresa and I have a tendency to, like, forget ourselves, you know, when there's, like, other people around to kind of do your own thing a little bit. So that's where that's coming from. We've been uh, talking about that, and hopefully we'll be able to come together and have, like, 
more, a wider array of stories. Because with this pandemic and everything, I kind of feel like we've, uh, it's almost like it's tempting to go into hibernation. It's like the world got put on hold, but it hasn't. So we got to break out of that. So we're talking about adventures to take together, like completing the mountains of sea trail. And also Teresa's never done anything like hitchhiking or anything on her own. So we've been talking about that kind of stuff too. Um, but yeah, anything. And the serial killer, my God, please tell us about that. I can't believe you're just like, oh, I met a serial killer, whatever. <laughs> like, what's the story behind that? Um, and yeah, the dumpsters have been slim lately. Hopefully when we get back to Durham, we're about to pretty soon because it's getting to be winter. The dumpsters are better there, but here in the mountains, we have not been having much luck. Anything else? Um, nope. I'm good. Um, if you have any questions or comments, please visit our website, www.escapingsociety.weebly, B as in blonde, oh my God, dot com. We also have a Facebook page found at Escaping Society, a YouTube channel with uh, videos that, especially when we're taking a break from podcasts, like Between Seasons, we try to add to, and a donate button, which uh, if you can donate cash, um, always is really helpful. And if you can't, please send us a story or a question or comment or a joke or a riddle. (laughs) And uh, I'll end this podcast with three elephants fell out of an airplane. One fell on a house, one fell in the backyard, and one fell in a pool. Doot doot.